You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Did you know that the body's number one energy demand, the thing that siphons the most energy, is digesting food? It's the number one energy requirement by our bodies every single day. And it's incredible. It's to take that stuff from the external world, taking that food stuff and turning it into human tissue and also turning it into fuel to be able to to manage and to move all of these incredible processes that the human body can do. It's an incredible process, but it requires a lot of energy. And so in some senses, energy is going to be pulled away to handle the digestion of food rather than other processes that might be related to healing. And this is a conversation that is getting a lot more attention today as far as utilizing fasting as a tool for healing from everything from acute injuries to debilitating chronic diseases. And recently I've been wanting to bring on a plethora of different voices in this space, in this perspective of fasting, and also the people who have the most scientific data to back up what they're sharing. And I wanna provide this information because I believe that we all have the right to know about the various tools that are available to help us to heal from conditions and our loved ones, as well as the things that we go through in our life. If we're even wanting to up-level our health, if we're already a good place of health, how do we get better? Because I always believe there's another level. But for most folks here in this country, specifically, if we're talking about the United States, we're a nation of people who are really struggling with our health overall. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Metabolic Syndrome and Related Disorders disclosed that only 12% of American adults are metabolically healthy. We have a problem here. Houston, we have a problem. Listen, this, when we talk about issues like this, there can't be a problem without a solution. But oftentimes, the solutions are multifaceted. There's a lot of solutions. There's a lot of different paths to the goal. And what we hear about in our conventional day-to-day lives is the stuff that's getting promoted through the television, right? You can't watch SportsCenter without being seduced into asking your doctor about a medication to fix everything from your cholesterol to your Johnson, all right? Or to your, if you don't know what I mean by Johnson, to your hood. Or if we're talking in the emoji language, to your eggplant. All right. You're just trying to get the update on the Celtics game, you know, or the Bulls or whatever it is. And next thing you know, ask your doctor about this is what we know. The lens of pharmacology, which is incredibly limited. It's this myopic view of health and disease where we're treating the symptoms of the illness and not removing the cause. What's causing the hypertension? What's causing the dysregulated blood sugar? What's causing the obesity? Remove the cause instead of treating symptoms, which what has that gotten us? If we're talking about treating symptoms, here in the United States last year, over $4 trillion. We can't even fathom how much that is. $4 trillion was spent in our healthcare system. Yet everything keeps getting worse. Already 70% of United States citizens are on pharmaceutical drugs. We're on it but it's not helping, we're not getting better. As a matter of fact, right now, we are the first generation whose lifespan is going to be shorter than the generation before us. 
The first time in recorded human history this is happening, despite all of our so-called medical advances, we're now sicker and more obese than we've ever been. And this is why we need to have real, clinically proven, evidence-based, not just guessing and not treating the symptom, but removing the cause of the illness and respecting the magnificent capabilities of the human body that is so far beyond our comprehension to act as if we understand the capacity of the human body already. If somebody's acting like they've got that, all this stuff figured out, grab your bag, grab your knapsack and run. Grab your fanny pack, jet out of there. Because we know so little. What the human body is able to do, the human body and mind, is beyond our scope. We do know principles. We know some principles. We know principles that allude to what constitutes a healthy, sovereign human body. All right, the things that our DNA expects us to do that we can actually analyze today, which our ancestors have known for quite some time. We're just accessing today's science that affirms what we already know to be true, which there are very specific things that literally enable our DNA and our, our genes to print out optimal copies of us. All right, so that's what we're really talking about. And one of those tools today that we're going to, again, expand on, now we're going from the realm of our experts we've had on talking about intermittent fasting talking about fasting in relationship to what about it being catered for different biological makeups? If we're talking about a male and a female, like are there gonna be considerations there? And we just had on Dr. Amy Shaw, and prior to that, Dr. Will Cole. And we're just gonna keep continuing this conversation. And today we're gonna to talk about another dimension of fasting that for myself, I would have thought this was crazy. I would have thought this was straight up nuts, all right? If I'm one of those people, guys, but I've learned to relax that muscle of being a somebody who's just kind of already skeptical to being much more open-minded, all right? So I have a healthy bit of skepticism, but I'm open-minded to the data. I'm open-minded, especially to this whole term of seeing is believing. And firsthand in my life, the woman who is my wife today, my best friend, when we were boyfriend and girlfriend, we were in college. We had that college love, that school love. She called me crying one day because she went for her annual exam, that pap. And she was told by her physician that they found some cancerous cells. She was upset. She was crying. I, she's telling me this. I have no idea what to do. I was a strength and conditioning coach. I, I had recovered from my own, quote, incurable health condition, this arthritic condition of my spine and bones. And I was doing well and I was helping people, but it was very rudimentary as far as nutrition. And I, was, I just shifted my coursework back to biology, nutritional science and all that stuff. But still, I'm getting indoctrinated with bad science because it's coming from a conventional university where the nutrition program is funded by General Mills. So she's telling me this, and I have no idea what to do except console her and to say it's going to be all right. But I have no idea if it's going to be all right. I'm like, you need to talk to your mother because I was seeing physicians. I was seeing all these different people coming in to talk to her mother. who's a, She's an occupational therapist, but she was just so well-versed in these different dynamics with nutrition that I just, I thought were just these kind of... Um, rogue, strange things myself. 
but people were getting well and people were constantly like sending her all of these expensive gifts and you know these these letters and trying to and she's always just like no 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 she's just doing it out of the love but one of the things that she employed for her was a structured fasting protocol so this was a longer term this isn't like intermittent fasting but more what we're going to talk about today and this is what really happened and it changed my life 21 days she utilized the program the fasting program that her mother put in place for her she went and got the checkup again. This was maybe 22 days later, and they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find any trace of these cancerous cells and precancerous cells, all right, cervical cancer. And I didn't know that, that was possible. When she told me this, I didn't know it was a thing. How could you just have cancer cells there and then suddenly they're not there? That changed everything for me because within a week, one of the clients that I was working with at the university, she had fibroid tumors and she was about to start work with me. We, I'd worked with her maybe a year or so before and she was just doing well. And she let me know, you know, hey, Shaw, you know, I kind of been too busy. I haven't been taking care of myself as much. I want to get back in the gym. But she was like, I'm going to have to have surgery, though, in a, in a couple of months. I think she said in about a month and a half. Uh, and I was like, why? What's going on? Um, and she said that I have fibroid tumors that they need to remove. This caused me a lot of discomfort, heavy bleeding. And I was like, for first of all, I'm just like, why would I want to, when we start working together and then you could have the surgery that's going to interrupt and, you know, this kind of thing. I was like, why don't we try and do something that could potentially get you better? And so she employed the same thing that my wife did. And I couldn't have somebody do something in good consciousness if I didn't do it myself. So I did it. 21 days, 21 days. This is a true story. And it was one of the most incredible and also challenging experiences. There were moments of challenge and I didn't even know that my body could do some of the things that it, that it did. But long story short with my client, Kathy, 18 days into it, she was laying on the floor at the gym. I was just, we were just doing some light little, little stuff here and there. And I walked away, I went over to my desk to get something and I heard her like screaming, like some kind of weird, like, oh my God, kind of scream, like yell. And I come back and she's moving her fingers around her waist and she was trying to find the fibroids. Whereas before, they were so noticeable. They were like the size of two oranges. And now she found them and they were tiny. They were like the size of some, some, some grapes at that point. This happened. Regardless of any clinical studies, which this is what I do today, I need the data. But I saw it firsthand and it changed everything for me. I didn't know that was possible. Needless to say, she didn't need to get the hysterectomy that was being advised for her to get because that was the only solution. We'll just cut that shit out. You don't need it. You don't need any of those female reproductive organs. You don't need them. You don't need them. What happens when you do that? That's all we have to at least encourage people to be more empowered to ask their physician. What about my estrogen production and progesterone, my testosterone, all these different things. What's going to happen with my brain? What's going to happen with my gastrointestinal tract and how it associates with these hormones? What's going to happen to my bone density? Everything is affected when we just start going and chopping body parts out haphazardly because it's a standard of care. This is why today I want to provide another way 
Another solution, just something to add to your superhero utility belt for yourself, people you care about, backed by clinical evidence, and to keep an open mind. Because for me, it was difficult. If I didn't see it myself, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I didn't even know that was possible. But that was the moment, and I, I don't share this very often, that was the moment that shifted everything for me. That's why I'm here with you today. That's, that moment is why I have an international best-selling book. I have a USA Today national best-selling book. I've guest lectured everywhere from freaking NYU to international, you know, shout out to everybody in Nova Scotia, Dalhousie. I'm brought in, I'm speaking to medical students, speaking at conferences for physicians. All of this, everything that's happened thus far, the number one health podcast in the United States many, many times over, coming from what's not considered to be a, a glamorous side of health and wellness, St. Louis, Missouri, the heartland, all right? Because of that moment, that's when I shifted my intention, my full attention to nutrition, to understanding that our bodies are literally made of the food that we eat. And that interaction, that touch point, and lack thereof, the right stuff coming in. And also, when we remove that touch point, what does the body do then? Well, there's going to be upticks in things like insulin sensitivity, leptin sensitivity, brain-derived neurotropic factor, autophagy. The list goes on and on. And more things that we're going to talk about today. Really cool stuff starts happening when we give our bodies the right conditions to do the thing that it's designed to do. So, again, really excited about this conversation. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And of course, obviously, our knowledge of nutrition has advanced so much, you know, just me being in this space for about 20 years now and seeing all of the different things coming to fold as far as clinical evidence. But these are things oftentimes that have been around for centuries, for thousands of years in some instances. And now we're just using our, our modern day testing capacities to affirm what people before us already knew. So again, to reiterate everything that we touched on thus far, we now have clinical evidence to affirm. For example, scientists at the Longevity Institute, the School of Gerontology, and the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Southern California demonstrated that utilizing structured fasting decreased the biomarkers and risk factors for cancer, both in animal studies and human studies. This isn't just some airy-fairy made-up thing. People on the ground, scientists on the ground are studying this at a rapid pace right now because they're seeing like, wow, there are some really unexplainable, seemingly unexplainable things happening by utilizing this tool, this practice that humans have been utilizing literally since the beginning of humanity. So, and also same thing, our knowledge of nutrition has continued to grow in recent years, affirming things have been used for thousands of years that today we're using modern science to just affirm that they're effective. For example, one of those things for our cognitive performance, for neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells, which just a couple decades ago, going to a, a fancy university, paying a ton of money, you're gonna be told by your professor that the human brain cannot grow new brain cells. Like what you got is what you got once you reach adulthood. It's all downhill from there. It's not true. We know today specifically several parts of the brain, but specifically we know a ton now about the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain, and stimulating neurogenesis there. But also we know about things that are neuroprotective that prevent 
our brain cells from decaying and dying an untimely death. One of those things is lion's mane medicinal mushroom. Lion's mane researchers at the University of Malaya demonstrated that lion's mane has neuroprotective effects and even stimulates the growth of new brain cells, right? It has this growth factor. And it's not just the fact, again, it's been utilized for thousands of years. Now we have access to these things in a way that is even better in some instances by utilizing a dual extraction of the lion's mane mushroom, which is a hot water extract and an alcohol extract. This does not mean it's alcohol in it. It's just the extraction method, enabling us to actually pull the hormonal compounds out and pull the antioxidant compounds out and get all the incredible things that are contained in these medicinal mushrooms that have been utilized, again, for centuries, sometimes thousands of years. Huge fan of Lion's Mane. Also, Lion's Mane coffee. There's a Lion's Mane blend of organic coffee with Lion's Mane with Chaga. Only at Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. You're going to get 10 to 15% off depending on how much of the mushies you get, the mushrooms that you get. They also have an Lion's Mane elixir and also the Lion's Mane coffee as well. So both of those are two of my favorite things. Pop over there, check them out. It's foursigmatic.com forward slash model. Again, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Brilliant by Satbala. Not only is Sean's content critical for this moment, but he explains everything so clearly that it's easy to keep in our minds throughout the day. I especially appreciate his extensive show notes, which many podcasters don't bother to do. Lots of extra work, but make it so much easier to find all the valuable information and references in the show. Thanks, Sean. You're invaluable. By the way, love Eat Smarter. Thank you so much. And thank you for that acknowledgement. It means so much. And if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. I really do appreciate it. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Goldhammer, and he's one of the world's leading experts on medically supervised fasting. In 1984, Dr. Goldhammer founded and became the director of True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. And since then, he supervised the fasting and care of more than 20,000 patients. And True North Health is a multidiscipline practice that includes medical doctors, osteopathic physicians, chiropractors, naturopathic physicians, and psychologists. And this center is the largest facility in the world specializing in medically supervised fasting. Dr. Goldhammer is also the author of the best-selling books, The Health Promoting Cookbook, and co-author of The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force, that undermines health and happiness. And now he's here today on the Model Health Show to share his wisdom and experience. So let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Dr. Alan Goldhammer, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's my pleasure. Well, I've been diving into your world recently, and the first thing that I want to know and talk to you about is your superhero origin story. You know, you got a superhero name, by the way. What got you interested in the field of health and wellness in the first place? And what inspired you to make a focal point of your practice, fasting and all the benefits that that entails? Yeah, you know, I got started really young. I was a 16 year old frustrated basketball player getting beaten uh, by my best friend, Doug Wilde. And I, you know, I practiced, but I couldn't kind of get ahead of him. So I thought maybe if I got healthier, you know, that might give me an edge and I could crush him. 
And so I started reading books and I came across some stuff by Herbert Shelton and others that said that health was the result of healthful living and that diet uh, and lifestyle factors played an important role. So I adopted a whole plant food SOS free diet. And unfortunately, it failed because my friend Doug did the same thing. And, you know, to this day, I'm 62 years old playing basketball and still getting crushed because uh, he's just a lot better than I am. So it, it didn't help uh, me be, uh, beat him. But it did get me interested in, in healthful living. I was also inspired by my uncle, who was a physician. And he said that, uh, I remember I was about 16 and I decided I was gonna pursue this kind of career. And he said, no, absolutely not. Uh, nobody in this family goes to these alternative type doctors and nobody certainly becomes one of these alternative doctors. And he said, I would be better if I became a communist spy. Wow. And he was absolutely irate. I, I remember him screaming and yelling. I thought I was going to witness my first stroke right then and there. And, but anyway, he left. And my dad, who was a pretty serious guy, took me aside. He said, son, I don't know about this alternative medicine business. He says, but anything that makes him that angry and mad, well, it can't be bad. So you stick to your guns. Oh. And he encouraged me. And, uh, you know, and I, I went to chiropractic college in uh, Oregon and then osteopathic college in Australia. And I got a chance to do some work with a guy named Alec Burton who had uh, decades of experience using medically supervised water-only fasting and helping people get well. And it blew my mind because I watched these people coming in with conditions that I was trained, nothing you can do except give them drugs, they'll be sick forever, that's just how it is, high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, lymphoma, and they got well. And you know, I kept, I, oh man, if this one gets well, I'll really be convinced. I said it like 50 times to myself. And so as I started seeing people get well, I realized that things were a little different than I had been trained and that I had believed. And that the difference seemed to be the people willing to do really dangerous and radical things like, you know, eat well and <laughs> exercise and go to bed on time and use fasting were actually able to heal themselves from these conditions. They got off their blood pressure meds, they got off their diabetes meds, their blood sugar and blood pressure normalized. I remember, um, calling my uncle and saying, you know, uncle, I'm seeing these patients with blood pressure consistently getting well. He says, no, they're not. I said, I'm watching, I'm taking the blood pressures. They're getting well. He says, you don't know how to take blood pressure. I said, no, I know how to take blood pressure. And so when I came back to the United States after training in Australia, my wife, Dr. Moreno and I decided we were going to do this. And so we opened up True North Health Center. This was 1986. And since then we've had over 20,000 people undergo fasting here. Um, we've had uh, a chance to see a wide variety of conditions get well, and we we're publishing those results in peer-reviewed journals. So we were able to demonstrate that fasting can be done safely, it can be uh, efficacious, uh, as long as a reasonable protocol is followed and you do it with the appropriate patients. That's powerful. You, your family sounds like it would be a wonderful sitcom, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but you stated something in your work. You stated that, and this can seem a little unusual, you stated that Essentially, when you go to see a conventional physician, they often don't expect you to get better. And that's kind of what well, you're not only that, to. they guarantee you. They guarantee you. If you go in to a conventional doctor, say with high blood pressure, they will say, number one, you will need to take these medications. It might be one, two, three, four, five different medications, depending on how many drugs it takes to bring your pressure down. And they will guarantee you, if you do exactly what you're told, you'll never get well. They'll tell you, you'll be on these drugs, not for a week, not for a month, but for the rest of your life. Because they know these drugs will not get you healthy, but they will try to bring your pressure down and reduce your risk of stroke. 
It never even dawns on them about giving. Well, it's not part of the paradigm. At the True North Health Center, we are a uh, residency training site. Uh, and so, for example, uh, students will come in as part of their training. They spend a month rotation at the clinic. And the most common comment from the medical uh, interns is, wow, I've never seen somebody with blood pressure get well before. Or I've never seen somebody with diabetes get well before. This is the first thing. Because it's not part of the paradigm. The paradigm is you manage these symptoms with drugs. You pay the price, the chronic cough, fatigue, the impotence, the premature death. And that's just accepted as a consequence because nobody gets well. This is an alternative approach. This deals, this is considered very radical and radical comes from the word radicus or root or cause because you're dealing with the root or cause, the reason why people got high blood pressure. Right. And it's largely because what people put in their mouth. So by, when you change the cause, you get rid of the, the problem. Now, granted, there's a downside. You have to keep eating a healthy diet and you have to keep exercising. You have to keep getting enough sleep. You have to avoid the things that cause the problem. But that's more than what most people want to take on. Most people want to keep doing the things that cause their problem, but take a pill, potion, or powder and then pretend like that's going to get them healthier. Right. These are all things that you just listed. These are things that our genes expect us to do. You know, our DNA expects us to provide these environmental inputs. And what you're just sharing is that a lot of these drugs are not really treating the underlying condition. They're treating the consequences of not doing those things. Is that right? Right. It's like we spend billions and billions of dollars treating the leading cause of death in the United States, heart disease, cancer, and stroke. What we don't do is spend a lot of money treating the actual causes of death, the reason people get heart disease, cancer, stroke. We give them a greasy, fatty, processed uh, food diet, they get obese, they develop metabolic syndrome, then they are at increased risk of dying from heart disease, cancer, uh, stroke, and even infectious diseases like COVID-19. If you look today at who's vulnerable to dying from infectious diseases, one of the major risk factors is metabolic syndrome, increased blood pressure, blood sugar levels, uh, uh, blood lipid levels, et cetera. So the idea being that the same diet that makes you vulnerable to dying from heart disease is the same diet that makes you vulnerable from dying from some forms of cancer and autoimmune diseases and even infectious diseases. It's so true. So unless we're prepared to make those dietary and lifestyle changes, get rid of the drinking of the alcohol, the use of the tobacco, and the use of the chemicals that are added to food that make us fat, sick, and miserable, the salt, the sugar, the oil, then we're not going to be able to get rid of the actual causes of disease and we'll be stuck treating the leading causes of death. Yeah, it's unbelievable. From my knowledge, I'm the, the first person that I'm aware of to really just go and actually stay on top of the CDC site because it's right there on the site itself. The most updated data, and this is just from a couple of weeks ago, found that 94% of the folks who lost their lives in association with COVID-19 had an average of 38 We'll put the link for everybody in the show notes, 3.8 pre-existing chronic diseases and or comorbidities. It's insane. It's just how are we even walking around so sick in the first place? Wow. Yeah, it's very frustrating because the paradigm is off. And so that means behavioral changes are difficult to induce. You know, people aren't thinking about getting well. They're thinking about how do you get your symptoms to go away? And even with weight loss, you know, most programs fail miserably at reducing all-cause mortality. Even... Uh, procedures like surgical procedures, gastric bypass, where they may be able to average a 50 pound weight reduction, it still doesn't reduce all cause mortality substantially because you're still not dealing with the reason why people are overweight and developing the diseases of dietary excess. They used to call those the diseases of kings. 
because it was only the wealthy elite kings that could develop the cardiovascular disease and the, and the diabetes or the gout. You know, these were conditions that were rare. Now they're ubiquitous because even people of limited means in modern society are eating highly processed foods that in the past would have only been available to, to the wealthy elite. Yeah, we're all royalty now in, many, in a sense. And maybe the joker, maybe the jester. So I want to talk to you, really, this is why I'm so excited. And I mentioned this, you know, in my clinical practice, as well as just from some of the great teachers that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years, utilizing this tool of fasting. And we've done different episodes talking with some of the experts, you know, especially in the, in the vein of intermittent fasting. But today I want to talk about and provide this tool because this could be transformative, even life-saving for folks who really do need it. And you're somebody who is really... The, arguably the top person in the world when we're talking about medically supervised water fasting. So can you talk about exactly what does that mean? What does that constitute sure. and why it's so effective? So, you know, definition of fasting is the complete absence of all substances except pure water in an environment of complete rest. And, you know, this resting business, uh, as we can discuss, is really important because one of the goals of fasting is to give the body a chance to mobilize and eliminate those accumulated intermediary products that have built up inside the cells and inside the body that were thought to contribute to uh, compromising uh, health. And so there's actually two kinds of fasting that people do that are common right now. One is intermittent fasting, which you mentioned, which is essentially, uh, for example, limiting the feeding window. And uh, what we do at our clinic and with our patients is we uh, feed them in an eight hour feeding window when they're eating. So, and they have a 16 hour period of fasting. So that means they're not eating three or four hours before they go to bed. We might delay breakfast a little bit from what's traditional. And so that means they eat within that eight hours or you'd have people that perhaps need a higher caloric intake. Maybe they're feeding in a, in a 12 hour window. Uh, but the idea is even that um, 12 to 16 hours of fasting, just that brief amount of time is, is cumulatively thought to induce changes in the body that are associated with healing, increasing autophagy, reducing insulin resistance, et cetera. So that little bit of fasting every day that almost everybody can do safely because it doesn't require withdrawal medications, it doesn't require you know, radical uh, supervision, uh, may be a good long-term benefit. And there's lots of research by Walter Longo and others, uh, both in animal studies and now in human studies, showing that there's some benefit to limiting the feeding window and using intermittent fasting. He also recommends uh, periods of time during the months where maybe you would limit your calorie intake to 750 or 800 calories, maybe using whether it's his products or whether uh, it's food restriction. But the idea is to facilitate weight loss and reverse some of those dietary excess issues. What we do that's unique is long-term water-only fasting, actual fasting, not fasting mimicking programs, but actual fasting. And those periods of time will range anywhere from five to 40 days. So when they're undergoing fasting at the True North Health Center, first of all, let's be clear, it's people that have been medically screened. We've reviewed their medical history, done a physical exam and established based on laboratory data. So we know they're good candidates for fasting. And then they're in an inpatient setting, in our case, the True North Health Center, where they're being seen twice a day by staff doctors. And they're being evaluated, both blood, urine, and physical exam and or, uh, examination finding by doctors experienced in long-term fasting. And they're on water only, literally distilled water only for anywhere from five to up to 40 consecutive days. And during that time, uh, some really profound changes occur in the body. 
And as a 501c3 nonprofit research-based organization, we're in a position to actually research, document, and publish in peer-reviewed journals the results of what we're seeing, which really, as you mentioned, is rather spectacular. You know, we mentioned blood pressure. We did a study on high blood pressure where we took 174 consecutive patients with high blood pressure. And of those 174 patients, 174 people were able to lower their pressure enough to eliminate the need for medication. And for those that are willing to stick to a health-promoting diet, they can sustain those results indefinitely. We have the largest effects that have ever been shown in treating high blood pressure with an average effect size of 60 points in stage 3 hypertension, people with systolic blood pressures that start at 180 or higher. So these people are able to normalize their blood pressure, and if they adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet, they can sustain those blood pressures, eliminate the drugs that cause the chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and premature death, and overcome that problem, a problem that usually is considered to be irreversible, but manageable with drugs. That's incredible. I really hope that everybody's ears are perking up because again, you just mentioned high blood pressure, hypertension. It's one of those things just consider like, you got it, it's in your genes, it's right. the end of the story. We say the same thing with type two diabetes, another condition of dietary excess, where they're making enough insulin, but the insulin's not working because of insulin resistance to where they're um, uh, having to use medications to try to force the glucose into the cells. You know, when, when glucose can't get from the bloodstream into the cells where it's needed to be burned as fuel, blood sugar levels go up. That's what diabetes mellitus is, is inability of insulin to do its job. Well, fasting reduces insulin resistance. And so it allows most type 2 diabetics to achieve normal blood sugar levels without the need for the insulin or the metformin or the other medications. And that's huge. And you'll, you'll, we'll see hemoglobin A1Cs where they're 14, 16, and with diet, lifestyle change, and fasting, end up five and sustainable. Again, they got to do the diet, the sleep, the exercise, because you have to maintain healthful living in order to maintain the problem. So fasting is not like a magic cure. It's just a way to create an environment to give the body a chance to do what it does best, and that's heal itself if you get out of the way. Mm. So what is the underlying mechanism that enables fasting to be so effective? Is it because food requires so much energy? Is that Does that have to play a part? Well, actually, we know there's a number of mechanisms by which fasting works, and one of them certainly is weight loss. I mean, you know, anything you do that facilitates health weight loss may be potentially beneficial. And obviously nothing works better than fasting. I mean, if you fast, you lose an average of a pound a day. So people do all fast, lose a lot of weight. That's certainly at least part of the beneficial effect. There's also a naturopathic effect that occurs where the body selectively eliminates sodium and, and flushes it out. And most people are eating these high salt diets that allow them to hold lots of extra fluid in order to protect yourself from that toxic effect of excess sodium. And so that excess fluid volume increases your blood pressure. And so when you naturese or diurese, uh, what, what happens is the body gets rid of the excess fluid, the blood volume goes down, the blood pressure starts to drop, the, the non-healing wounds start to heal, the congestive heart failure starts to reverse. Um, and we also see primary detoxification in fasting. That was kind of the traditional justification for fasting. That's this idea that the body had toxins in it. And in fact, we know now if you take a fat biopsy of just about anybody in society, you'll find hundreds of different chemicals dioxin, PCB, pesticide residues, heavy metals, all kinds of uh, exogenous toxins. There's also endogenous uh, materials, not necessarily toxins, but things like cholesterol and lipofuscin and creoid and all kinds of things that are maybe normal products, but when they're in abnormal quantity, they may interfere 
uh, with, with cellular function. And the body in fasting rapidly mobilizes and eliminates these toxins. In fact, some people argue it does it so rapidly, it might be dangerous unless you take their proprietary products. And of course, I guess it's perfectly safe. Um, there's also the idea that fasting, much like exercise, induces enzymatic changes. You know, when a competitive athlete works out every day, they get better and better at mobilizing glycogen and their glycogen stores and storing uh, more glycogen. And so that glyconogenolysis process is driven by enzymes. And so when you exercise and you force glyconogenolysis, you get better at it. You canalize these pathways. Well, fasting does the same thing. When you go on a fast, you canalize glycogen mobilization. And after 48 hours, you've used up your glycogen. Then you canalize lipolysis, fat mobilizing enzyme pathways, and gluconeogenesis, protein mobilizing pathways. And when you induce these pathways, it turns out that, pers that persists. So it's not just while you're fasting that you detoxify and mobilize macronutrients more efficiently, but even after fasting, those enzyme pathways persist, much like uh, exercise and athletics, those enzyme systems persist. And so you're inducing macronutrient mobilizing uh, enzyme pathways, which are also mobilizing detoxifying pathways. And so that process of detoxifying gets more and more efficient, maybe a little bit with intermittent fasting and certainly a whole lot with long-term fasting. And so the, the idea is that the body not just gets rid of the fat, but also a lot of the materials that are stored in that fat, uh, lowering the total body load. We also see problems with gut leakage in people where the, the, in my, the uh, intestinal mucosa, fine filter membranes uh, can become inflamed when exposed to free radicals and leak materials in, that in genetically vulnerable people stimulates the immune system to attack those particles, but also their own tissues. I mean, that's what autoimmune disease is, where your immune system is attacking your own body. So ulcerative colitis, uh, where your immune system is actually responsible for the inflammation in your colon. And one of the theories is that gut leakage, the, the constant exposure to these aberrant proteins or bacteria, et cetera, can lead to this autoimmune uh, response. Well, fasting allows the inflammatory process to profoundly reduce. We know that because if you look at acute phase reactive proteins or other measures of inflammation in the body, it progressively comes down in fasting. We're showing that in the research that we're doing right now. And we see it clinically because these issues heal up. The joint pain goes down. You're getting them off the prednisone, off the methotrexate, out of pain. And then if you feed a whole plant food SOS-free diet, you can actually sustain those results. And so we know that this, this process of healing the gut leakage appears in fasting. Some of the metabolic products that show up that are aberrant in the urine go away after fasting, which is a sign that that, that micro mesh membrane the intestinal mucosa is actually healing. And of course, you've got to get rid of the free radicals that cause it to get, that's why you can't drink, because drinking alcohol bathes the body in free radicals. That's why you get cirrhosis of the liver, which is essentially scar tissue, including from wine, even if it's organic. Alcohol itself is a nasty, uh, toxic substance that from our viewpoint needs to be eliminated. Same thing with heated fats, particularly heated animal fats at high temperature, lots of free radicals. The best example is actually smoking. You know, think about people that smoke. They get smoker's face. They get that premature aging. That's wrinkles are cross-linked collagen tissues that come from the free radicals from bathing the body with smoking. So you first get rid of the free radicals, but then you've got to heal up the, the gut. And one way to heal up the gut is to do, well, nothing. Fasting. It does it on its own. It does it automatically. 
And it does it more efficiently, we found, than it does with the pills, potions, and powders, and all the stuff that everybody's trying to sell everybody. This is a very ancient practice that gives the body a chance to very rapidly both detoxify, normalize some of these factors. There's even, you know, think about psycho-spiritual issues. Almost every religion, the Jews, the Jains, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Christians, everybody, they might kill each other in the street over disagreements, but they have one thing they all agree on, and that's that fasting is a very important process, both for mental and psychological and spiritual purposes. Um, fasting changes the way people feel about themselves and the world around them. It happens automatically. You can't help it. And so that may be why all these major religions have respect for fasting. And all we've done is take this ancient practice and begin to investigate it scientifically to understand how it is it has such a profound effect on people. Um, fasting stimulates the immune systems, a process called autophagy. And in fact, in 2016, the Nobel Prize for Medicine uh, was given to uh, a gentleman uh, from Japan that did some fabulous research showing how autophagy is how the body kills cancer cells and reverses these uh, toxicity issues. And fasting accentuates this uh, um, process of autophagy. And I think one of the biggest things of fasting that we've identified is changes in taste adaptation. We did a study where we detected minimum threshold to salt, to sugar, uh, and we showed that after fasting, the actual taste perceptions change in people to where the foods they used to crave, you know, aren't even that appealing anymore. It's too salty. It's too sweet. They don't need that artificial stimulation that comes from the chemicals that we're adding to food. And the hedonic response, the liking of various types of food changes with fasting. So now people will like the, the taste of fresh fruit and vegetables that maybe they didn't like before, but now post-fasting they find actually they're very enjoyable. The same process happens over time with careful feeding. If you eat well for a month, you neuroadapt to low salt diet. But to get people to eat well for a month is hard when the food is tasteless, disgusting, swelled to them because they're addicted to the pleasure trap. So helping escape the pleasure trap may be one of the most powerful tools of uh, fasting because it gives the body a chance. To, it's like taking a computer that's got a corrupted hard drive and you reboot it. And now all of a sudden, you don't know why, but it works well. It's working again. And we find the same thing is true with fasting. And we're trying to figure out the why with the research we're doing at True North Health. I love this. So I haven't shared this with you, but... What you're describing is exactly what happened to me. I didn't eat a salad in my entire life until I was 25 years old. This is the first time I ate a salad. I have no idea how I made it that far, but already I'd made some changes. I was eating less processed food, all this kind of stuff. But just my ability, my palate, I remember a couple months prior, my mother-in-law, who's just one of my greatest teachers, she made this wonderful salad. and She made this dressing from scratch. It's called... Uh, we call it Asanti Sana dressing, which means thank you in Swahili. But it was like made of, from almond butter. It's just wonderful. And I took a bite and I immediately went to the trash can because I was like heaving, you know. And I implemented a fast. It was a couple of weeks. And I went to get a salad. It was the first meal after, which we're going to talk about progressing back to eating food again. Yeah, very important. And, and I went and I sat down at Whole Foods and had a salad by myself off in a corner somewhere. And I took the first bite. I was scared. I was just like, I'm gonna, definitely going to throw up. And I took a bite and I was, my brain was like, this is so good. And I was still scared. I took the next bite. I was like, nah, it's just a fluke. I took the next bite. I was like, this is so good. I ate that salad and I walked out of there and somebody's walking by and I was just like, I just ate a salad. 
And they looked at me like I was from another planet, like, <laughs> okay, you know? So literally, and I just, just today, I was looking at some of this data from University of Buffalo, and they're trying to kind of pinpoint what's making this palate change take place. And it's apparently there's an, there's, our bodies are so amazing, but one of those things is a change in the proteins that we are producing in combination and correlation with the foods that we're eating. It's just changing the association our body has with these things. So powerful. Yeah, you also have, you know, think about the effect on the microbiome. You have five pounds of bacteria living in your intestinal tract right now. And those creatures are living creatures that are eating and drinking and actually defecating inside you right now. You have five pounds of trillion creatures pooing in your intestinal tract right now. And what they poo in you could be really nasty toxic waste like TMA, which becomes trimethylamine oxidase and maybe why meat eaters get so much more colon cancer and die from heart disease at a faster rate than plant-based eaters do. Because uh, meat eaters have a different microflora than plant eaters do. And so they have different poo. What your bacteria poo inside you depends on what you feed them. If you feed them meat, you get a certain byproduct. If you feed them soluble fibers, you get a completely different, you get vitamin K in, in fertilizer. So one of the goals we do is to try to feed people in a way that promotes a healthy microbiome. And that means not taking antibiotics and doing things that kind of wipe out the flora and then feeding them to create an environment in the intestinal tract that favors healthy bacteria. And that's one of the things fasting does. It provides a profound rebooting of this microbiome. Uh, in fact, we've done a study with Washington University that the, uh, where we looked at uh, stool before and after fasting and follow up, and they're, they're analyzing that data right now. Um, you know, there's interesting people, I mentioned Walter Longo, who's kind of one of my heroes who's done some fabulous research and published in major impact journals like the Journal of Metabolism in 2015. And they showed tremendous things that go down and tremendous things that go up when people do fasting, even short-term fasting. And of course, these factors are profoundly enhanced with long-term fasting. So the benefits that we're seeing with short-term fasting are very exciting. And they're maybe even more profound when you get people to go for weeks or sometimes even several weeks uh, on water only. Yeah. You know, it, it's obviously some things like glucose and insulin are profoundly affected. Why, why do we care about that? Well, not only correcting diabetes, but some of the cravings people get and the binge eating they do and the problems they have regulating weight is in part because they're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, which drive their insulin up, which then drives sugar down and the brain thinks that they're starving. And so they're craving more food. And so it's very difficult to get um, stable apostatic mechanisms working when people's blood sugars and insulin levels are bouncing all over the place. Well, in fasting, you normalize glucose and insulin levels. It's a huge difference. That's why over 80% of our type 2 diabetics are able to achieve normal blood sugar levels without medications. And they've got things like insulin growth factor 1. And the um, lower your IGF-1, is lower your death rate is, essentially. And so lowering IGF happens with two things we know about. One is exercise. And the other is fasting. And you're going to hear this theme over and over again because the same things that get benefited by exercise also get benefited by fasting. And that's not intuitively obvious because you say, well, why would exercise where you're vigorously active and fasting where we say you have to rest induce the same metabolic changes in the, in the body, the same neurochemical changes? Well, it's because I believe that fasting and exercise both have one thing in common. They're undoing the consequence of dietary excess. And so the benefits we see with exercise, we've taken a look at those biomarkers and you look at them in fasting and lo and behold, time and time again, you see the same things happen with both types of intervention. Uh, leptin levels, 
you know, leptin levels go down with fasting and lower leptin levels are associated with lower inflammation. There's nothing I've seen that's more powerful at reducing systemic inflammation than water-only fasting. And that's why the diseases associated with inflammation seem to respond. High blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, some forms of cancer, all seem to have an inflammation association. And that may be one of the mechanisms by which fasting is helping. We already mentioned blood pressure, heart rate, um, even things like mTOR. You know, they've identified mammalian target of rampamycin that the lower the mTOR levels are associated with increased autophagy. And fasting and exercise apparently can lower um, mTOR levels. Um, we know that the um, inflammatory markers, you know, the IL-6, the TNIL, all these sophisticated biomarkers, they all go down with fasting during this fasting process. In fact, that's why a lot of the drug companies are in interested in fasting. Um, you know, fasting used to be considered criminal quackery, outrageous behavior. Um, you know, at one point I had to have a criminal defense attorney represent me because the fasting was considered so outrageous. Now we've gone from being criminal quacks to cutting edge researchers because major research centers are looking at fasting in part because we know now that fasting can augment the effect even of things like chemotherapy. Um, Longo's done some studies showing that, you know, you take rats with cancer and you give them enough chemotherapy to kill all their cancer cells and the rats all die. But if you take the same rats with the same cancer but use intermittent fasting, the rats survive dramatically enhancing cancer-free survival. And once uh, pharmaceutical companies realized that fasting may augment traditional treatments, then all of a sudden there was some interest. And so, and that's, that's now, uh, you know, there's, because what they're trying to do is come up with what are called fasting mimicking drugs. Right. So drugs that would induce the changes that fasting does in the body, but without that nasty fasting, without having to, you know, give up your greasy, fatty, slimy processed foods, you just take the pill and then you get all these biochemical changes that I've been uh, uh, mentioning. To date, there is no drug that does that, by the way. Right. The only thing that we know that does it is diet, exercise, and fasting. And on that note of processed foods, by the way, I'd love for you to make this distinction because, you know, we got listeners who are doing lots of different types of whole food diets, whether it's paleo diet to a vegan diet to raw food diet and everything in between, and making the distinction because a lot of people talk about not eating as much processed foods. Yes. But processed meats as well sure. versus whole meats. Right, well, yeah, there's clearly, if you're gonna be using animal products, you don't wanna use highly processed animal food products. You don't, you don't want the, the little nuggets and the, and the uh, you, you want the dairy products that are full of oil and salt and sugar, you know, what I call coagulated cow pus in the form of cheese and these products, highly detrimental, highly allergenic, not foods that we use in, in feeding our patients before, during, or after uh, fasting. Uh, in the case of plant-based foods, you know, vegan foods, for example, may not have animal foods, but they can be highly health compromising, uh, particularly if you're using the chemicals that are added to food that make people fat, sick, and miserable. And that's why we talk about an SOS-free diet. SOS is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for the chemicals added to food, salt, oil, and sugar. Salt, oil, and sugar are not foods. They're, they're highly processed food byproducts. They're added back to food to stimulate dopamine in the brain. And that's what leads to the overeating and the obesity. If you take the salt, oil, and sugar out of food, you get rid of most of the foods that make people fat, sick, and miserable. For example, um, you know, uh, people say, well, oil, okay, at nine calories per gram, highly concentrated, 
it, when it's fractionated oil, even olive oil or oils that are somewhat less bad than other oils, they're still um, uh, lend themselves to dietary excess in terms of obesity. You know, like McDougall says, you know, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. If you do a fat biopsy, you can actually tell what kind of fat people have been eating uh, just by how it's stored. So, and that's pretty well accepted that lower fat diets, uh, you know, may have some benefits in terms of reversing chronic artery disease. Warren has published a bunch of data that's very interesting there. The sugar, most people on both sides of the dietary arguments, whether it be plant-based or animal-based, agree. Sugar and refined carbohydrates create a lot of problems. You shouldn't be doing a lot of that. Uh, contributes to everything from tooth decay to obesity to immune suppression, changes in microbiome, et cetera. The one thing that we get a lot of flack about is actually salt, because people realize sodium is an essential nutrient without which you die. And it turns out, just like you get all the fat you need from whole plant foods, you also get all the um, sugar or carbohydrates you need from whole plant foods. You also get all the salt you need. And adding salt to the diet also contributes to obesity and problems. And, and you say, well, how could that be? Salt has no calories, it's a mineral. Why would eating a lot of salt contribute to obesity? And it's because salt stimulates what's called passive overeating. So when people, if you just eat your full to reach satiety, say of rice, you'd eat a certain amount of brown rice and then you'd feel full or potatoes or whatever it is. But if you take that same person, everything else being equal, salt that up a lot, you'll eat more before you feel satisfied. And people say, well, yeah, because it tastes better. You know, yeah, salt it up, it tastes better, you eat more. And that's exactly right. It tastes better. What tasting better means is more dopamine stimulation in the brain. And so, but more isn't necessarily better when it comes to the drug-like effect of these chemicals on food. And that's why people will eat more of the foods than they should be eating or would be eating in a natural setting because they've taken basically a, a highly concentrated substance that used to be so rare they used it as money. It was a precious commodity until we learned how to process foods. And so the bottom line is, Salt, oil, and sugar, when they're added to food, result in systematic overeating. They result in obesity. They alter the gut microbiome. They suppress the immune system. And if you eliminate those, you get rid of a lot of the problems that we have today with dietary excess. Yeah, you know, that problem. is essentially the issue. And it's true whether you're using animal food or not using animal food. If you're eating highly processed plant foods or highly processed animal foods, you're going to be struggling with obesity and diseases of excess. Now, can people eat animal foods? Certainly. You're designed to be able to digest both plant and animal foods. The problem today is the animal foods that are available to us may not be the same animal foods that might have been available uh, to our ancient ancestors. And um, the quantity that we're being exposed to may be a problem. In other words, it's just like you can eat, you know, too much of anything, too much water. I guess they call it drowning. I mean, you know, anything <laughs> to excess. But some foods like animal foods lend themselves to overeating easier than um, say plant foods with their high fiber content that provide normal satiety. So what we advocate for our patients before fasting, after fasting is a whole food diet. So whole plant foods, so fruits, vegetables, uh, non-glutinous grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, but not processed, juiced, blended, you know, taken down into a more concentrated form, but in a whole form. And if you do that, the tendency to overeat is dramatically reduced. So we tend to not have as much problem with obesity, dietary excess, blood sugar dysgracious, et cetera. And the, th the same principle would be true to animal foods. If you ate whole animal foods without salt, oil, and sugar, and all the processing, you'd have a much less tendency to overeat, and you'd have much less consequences from dietary excess. My viewpoint, the less, the better. Yeah. You know, and the crazy thing is a lot of these things are coming together in one source, like upwards of 80% of the salt people are consuming is from processed foods. 
So just by pulling out that piece, you automatically skyrocket your potential and your benefits. And I want to circle back because this point is so, in our paradigm, it can seem so counterintuitive and there's some nuance here, but I want to talk about, you mentioned that five to 40 days of fasting, for example. So I want you to answer two questions. So number one, what's the longest fast that's been recorded? And number two, if we're talking a couple of weeks, if we're talking 40 days, are we not getting into a place of starvation? What's the difference yes. between fasting yes. and starvation? So that's a very, very important question. And fasting is when you have labile reserves that you're, you still have that you can mobilize. Starvation is the moment you've depleted your labile reserves and you break down, you begin to break down vital tissues. Now, fasting results in improved health. Starvation results in death. So we don't do starvation at True North Health Center because obviously it would damage our outcome data tremendously. You know, we're really proud of our safety data. We've had 20,000 people walk in and 20,000 people walk out. And, you know, we're trying to keep it that way. And the way you do that is avoiding starvation. And the way we do that is we establish baselines, monitor people twice a day, lots of lots of signs and symptoms that we can monitor to, to measure that from electrolyte levels uh, to, to even looking at basic things like BMI. So um, the average 70 kilogram male, though, just a healthy male, has enough reserves in their body to fast about 70 days. So we're not even getting close to starvation in our patient population. Now, a very, very thin person wouldn't necessarily be able to fast 40 days. They may not have the reserves to be able to safely do that. Also, I might mention that weight loss and fasting is very rapid at first and in overweight patients, but in thinner people, weight loss is much slower. The body's conservation mechanisms kick in. And so weight loss can be as little as two pounds a week, you know, deep into the fast. So it's different than early in fasting where people are diuresing and losing fluid and, and all that. Now, one thing I want to point out though, is we have are the first place I know that has done this, but we have a DEXA scanner with a new software that does whole body composition. And so we've actually been able to go through and do a study where we sh are able to show exactly what happens to the fat, the protein, and specifically visceral fat mm. during water-only fasting. And what we found is that not only is fat preferentially mobilized during fasting and protein conserved if you're resting, but that visceral fat is preferentially mobilized. So you might lose 20%, uh, a person might lose 20% of their adipose tissue, but they may lose 50% of their visceral fat and only a small percentage of their um, lean tissue. And then after fasting, you know, so what happens in fasting is you lose a bunch of weight. After fasting, you regain weight. But the way you regain after fasting is water, fiber, glycogen, and protein, not fat. The fat keeps going down. And so what happens is you've lost a bunch of fat, you keep losing fat, but you regain your, your muscle, your fluid, your fiber, and your glycogen. And it used to be they thought, well, you lose weight, you gain it back, not a good thing. Now we know if rest is introduced in fasting, it minimizes protein mobilization and minimizes gluconeogenesis. If you're too active when you're fasting, what you end up doing is burning protein. And that's why we insist on, on, on a restful state. Now we let them stretch and do yoga and avoid the pathology of bed rest. But you're, that's not a time to be trying to maximize weight loss. You're trying to maximize fat loss. And so the mistake a lot of people do on their own when they're trying to do weight loss regimes is they're, they're doing vigorous exercise in conjunction with fasting. And yeah, they're losing weight, but they're also depleting protein stores unnecessarily. And so that's a really important issue. And that's we have a paper coming out. Uh, people that are interested in that, we have a fasting website called fasting.org, which is a fasting compendium website where it brings the world's literature on fasting together. 
And they can go on there and as, it all, as the papers are published, we release it onto that site. And they'll be able to see this, but it's really exciting because we've got really exciting. And we've also got follow-up data now because we've taken these people before, during, and after fasting and then during refeeding, but then we've flown them back at six weeks and they're be able to show not only did they lose fat and continue to lose fat, but they can sustain that in a, in a free living environment. And that's been a big criticism. Well, yeah, they can do it at Trumar Health Center where everything is done for them. But what happens when they go back to the real world? And we're able to show that people are able to sustain this, particularly appropriately motivated people. And the best motivation for people I find is pain, debility, and fear of death. So people that are sick are usually willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat well and exercise and go to bed on time. And also really um, health conscious people that are, you know, being smart about it, trying to do health promotion. They also do really well for the people that are looking for magic. This isn't so good. You know, if they want to just keep indulging in short term pleasure seeking self-indulgent behavior, they don't want to exercise. They don't want to get enough rest. This isn't this isn't for them. This is for highly motivated people that really, above all else, want to avoid the last 20 years of debility that will face most people because they don't live healthily during their younger years. All right. There's a lot there. So much good stuff. Listen, one of the big takeaways that I got, which is incredibly surprising, I love that you actually looked at this piece and studied it. Where is the fat being mobilized from that the body is breaking down? So it's predominantly coming from our visceral fat, which is well noted to be our most dangerous type of fat associated with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, the list goes on and on, Alzheimer's, but also, so in a, a, a lesser ratio of the subcutaneous fat, and also there's a muscle sparing capacity. But the key here is while you're doing the protocol, you're not exercising your face off. Right. That's unfortunately not where you can exercise. And so here, when you think about weight loss, you know, you have a couple pounds of glycogen in your muscle. So you know you've lost two pounds of glycogen, and that will come back as you start refeeding. And you know you have fiber in your intestinal tract that's going to go way down. Obviously, fasting, you're not going to have active bowel movements once the material that's in the colon is clear. That You're going to start getting to have normal fiber back in there. You're going to be a little bit dehydrated because there's a physiological dehydration that occurs with fasting. It's part of the conservation mechanism. So you're going to get your fluid levels back, you know, as you come off the fast. So, you know, there's several pounds of weight gain. That has nothing to do with fat. The fat on a whole plant food diet after fasting continues to go down. And that's what's really exciting. Even as the weight goes up, the percentage of body from fat and visceral fat continues to drop. And that continues as long as you keep eating a health-promoting diet. And then, of course, once you add exercise, then you pump back up the labile protein that you may have lost during fasting. You don't lose any muscle cells, but you, you lose a little bit of the juice out of the muscle. And that comes back uh, after fasting. It takes people about the length of fast refeeding to get back to where they were before fasting. That's very important for athletes that are utilizing fasting because they have to remember they have to have a recovery period or it will, it will deplete, uh, they will diminish their performance level. So they have to have adequate recovery um, after fasting in order to be able to compete uh, effectively. This is great. You know, my big mission is providing a multifaceted viewpoint of wellness and options for folks who oftentimes, I mean, same people coming into my office were people who were told, you know, this is incurable. Uh, this is something you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. You'll never walk again. You've got a certain amount of time to live and all these different stories. And I want people to know that there's a variety of different voices. And the people that I bring forward for everybody are getting results for their patients. And they're not treating symptoms. They're removing the underlying cause of the disease. And there's many different paths to the goal. 
but this one can be incredibly powerful. Specifically, let me ask you about this. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned colitis. And this is one of those conditions where for some folks, they have a chronic disease, but it's not as noticeable. It's not as like just a visceral experience. You know, even if somebody has high blood pressure, for example, they might not even know it. But right. when you have colitis, it's a constant issue. It can be just something that just keeps on interrupting your yeah. life. Same thing with Crohn's. Can you just talk a little bit about any success you've seen with that? Yeah. I mean, if you have uh, Crohn's or colitis, you may have, you know, as much as 20 bloody bowel movements a day. I mean, it can be a really debilitating condition that limits people where they can go, what they can do, constant pain, debility, anemia, surgery, and premature death. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is that the diet is often not emphasized by conventional gastroenterologists. Some of them are antagonistic. The diet may have anything to do with it. I mean, why would you think that what you put in your mouth might have something to do with what comes out the other end? I mean, you know, how ridiculous. Uh, and the fact is there are some food factors that are so profound that many of my patients have already figured it out just by trial and error before we even talk to them. One is dairy products. Dairy products are like gasoline on the fire of inflammation for many colitis patients. Those proteins are just absolutely antagonistic and people can turn on and off their colitis sometimes just how much, uh, how much uh, dairy pro uh, proteins they're putting in their diet. Sometimes just stopping dairy is enough to actually bring the condition under better control. Another is glutinous grains, particularly um, um, wheat, rye, barley, these food factors for people that are sensitive to those, it can be devastating. Now, we know in 1% of the population that have celiac disease, everybody accepts that, but they have trouble understanding that just because your immune system isn't attacking uh, uh, you in the way that it does with celiac doesn't mean it can't be contributing to factors downstream in the colon or with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You know, the gene, the HLADQ gene associated with Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the same gene associated with gluten sensitivity. So if, if the colon isn't being attacked by the immune system, it may be the thyroid that's being attacked. You know, lots of different mechanisms by which the body can be compromised by these factors. Sugar itself uh, can be often antagonistic for colitis patients, as is alcohol. No, alcohol is nasty. And most colitis patients recognize, oh, if they, if they hold off on the drinking, then they have better control uh, in the bowel. If they do fasting, it's really profound because the gut will heal itself. And then with a carefully controlled diet, you can oftentimes get enough control that the need for medication is eliminated. I love this. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. When I was in high school and college, our big sports performance game day meal was muscacholi. All right, muscacholi consciousness, muscacholi performance, and wondering why we're over on the sidelines yawning and you know waiting for the next play to cycle back in again of course you get hopped up you get the adrenaline going you do your performance but what if there was something better not just for game day but for practice days as well because how you practice is how you perform and so if you're dedicated to true sports performance your nutrition really does matter and now we have things that have clinical evidence peer-reviewed controlled trials that show the efficacy of things that have been utilized for centuries. And a study published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise tested 30 healthy athletes for six weeks to record the effects of cordyceps medicinal mushroom on their performance. The group that added cordyceps to their daily regimen had twice the oxygen uptake of the control group. This oxygen is essential in supplying nutrients to your muscles, preventing fatigue, and preventing the buildup of lactic acid. Another study done by the same group also showed a 9% increase in aerobic activity from utilizing cordyceps. And for myself personally, my pre-workout go-to 
is Shroom Tech Sport from Onnit. And this is because it was the subject of a double-blind, placebo-controlled 12-week clinical trial performed by researchers at Florida State University. And they found that utilizing Shroom Tech Sport as a pre-workout showed a direct increase in bench press reps by 12%. They also found an increase in combined bench press and back squat reps by 7% for the supersets and also were found to parallel the earlier study with a cardio performance increase by 8.8%, almost 9% that was seen in the earlier clinical trial. If you're not utilizing Shroom Tech Sport, definitely check it out. Go to onnit.com forward slash model, that's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash model for 10% off. It's a world-class pre-workout and pre-life supplement to use. Onnit.com forward slash model. Now back to the show. So I want to reemphasize this, especially when we're talking about going from, you know, the sad diet, the standard American diet, or even a healthful diet and still dealing with chronic issues. I want to implore folks to, you know, reach out to your center and get more information because we're talking about medically supervised water fasting. And I would love if you could, this is really an important part of this, if you could just give a brief summation of what is the proper way people should be fasting? Like, do you just jump right into it? And also, what do you do after the fast is over? Do you just jump right back to eating food? <laughs> yeah, most important part of fasting is appropriate refeeding. It takes about half the length of a fast to carefully realignment. And in a longer fast, that's very important. It can be very serious, damaging, or even deadly. Uh, there's processes called refeeding syndrome where persons a very long fast and were to go into inappropriate refeeding, they can get into really serious trouble. Uh, so it's very important if you're going to do fasting. Number one, history exam and lab. Make sure you're a good candidate for fasting. Number two, proper supervision during fasting and appropriate rest and then careful realimentation. So you, we usually, for example, we'll start with fresh fruit or vegetable juices, go to whole uh, fruits and vegetables, steamed and starchy vegetables. And there's a progressive pattern. You know, there's a day per week of fasting for each of these things that we do. So that it takes about half, like a 40-day fast takes about 20 days to fully realignment. You know, a 10-day fast takes about five days to, to recover in a controlled setting. Uh, so careful refeeding, probably the most important part of fasting. Uh, appropriate patient selection, the most important part of not screwing people up. And remember that people cannot do water fasting on most medications safely, that there's a profound change in the body that occurs in fasting that would make even medications that they're tolerating feeding not safe fasting. And also that appropriate inappropriate withdrawal of medications can be a serious problem. You don't just stop steroids, for example, overnight, you can get serious problems. So it's important to work with a doctor that is familiar with this process, particularly as we get into people that are on medications, have health issues or doing, or doing longer fasting. And one of the things we offer for free to your listeners is if they're interested in finding out if any of this might be relevant to them, they can go on our website, complete the registration forms, and we offer a no-cost phone conversation with me to talk about, is this relevant? We can refer them to a doctor that perhaps is close to them that might be familiar with this type of work. We have a group of doctors that we've trained over the years that are out there in practice, or they can come to the Truno, if it's appropriate to come to the Truno Health Center or one of the other centers that specialize in fasting supervision around the country, we can help put them in contact with those, those resources. We also have doctors around the country that offer phone, converse, uh, phone coaching that are uh, through Zoom and through phones where they can talk to a doctor that's not an idiot, 
it'll help help them engage about, yes, it's possible to get well. These are things they might want to do or work with their local family physician in helping them through this pro- one of these processes. So we, all, we do offer some services to help people implement this because we recognize not everybody has a doctor that's versed with nutrition or fasting or whatever. And some of their physicians are actually antagonistic. They don't think that you should eat a health promoting diet. That's not not appropriate. You know, you, you need, everybody's got to have milk or whatever it is that they believe. Right. And, you know, the fact they're wrong doesn't doesn't make it any easier on the patients. Can you share that website for everybody that's listening? Yeah. Our website is truenorthhealth.com. Okay, perfect. Truenorthhealth.com. Click on the registration forms. It's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, this I love that you said this is something that's occurring more and more, thankfully. You know, again, I've been in this field for 20 years, but now it's starting to come up as like, don't just get a second opinion. Get a Get a second opinion from somebody who has the same goal as you. Get an opinion from somebody who actually knows it's possible to not need lisinopril or metformin right. or Celebrex or whatever it is that you're right. using to treat the symptom that's caused by your lifestyle-related uh, behavior. So I love that so much. There's one other thing I just would mention. If, if people really want to get into the weeds with this, we have a book. It's called The Pleasure Trap. And it's readily available uh, from Amazon and all the rest of it. And The Pleasure Trap is a bit of a disturbing book because it tells people what they need to know, not what they want to hear. So it's not going to give you foo-foo, blow smoke up your dress kind of a book. But if you're really serious about understanding it, it, it goes through and, and does a, a good job of explaining the rationale. It talks a lot about fasting and how fasting can be used to help escape the pleasure trap and about the diet and lifestyle recommendations that we make. So there are resources available. Perfect. So, okay, we answered the tail end of the question. Now, what about the beginning? What is the proper way people should be fasting? So everybody should be fasting, in my opinion, 12 to 16 hours every day, every day. You need to not eat the three or four hours before you go to sleep at night. Don't be eating right before you go to bed because that food not only gets stored as fat, but it also tends to disrupt the sleep quality. Um, People believe that if you um, do some exercise before you eat breakfast in the morning, it actually preferentially mobilizes fat reserves. That may be true. And so you have this period of fasting each and every day, 12 to 16 hours. And then we believe that occasionally appropriately screened patients may benefit from a longer period of fasting ranging from five to 40 days. We recommend that be done in conjunction with their physicians and then with the help of doctors that are familiar with fasting so they don't muck it up. Or come to a place like True North Health, we'll be happy to do everything for you. We'll supervise you. We'll get you through the process. We can do it affordably. Mm, perfect. I love that. So let's go back. I want to, you kept saying this about exercise and fasting have so many similarities. And you mentioned some of the different things, you know, autophagy. But one of those things that jumped out, BDNF, for example. Right. You know, BDNF is really exciting, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. They did stuff with rats where they put rats, in, genetically bred rats, so they're the same. They put them in cages. They treat everything the same, except they give one rat a wheel where it can exercise. And they, and they will. They will exercise. And they noticed that the rats that exercised didn't get Alzheimer's disease, dementia, you know, rat dementia, which they test by various, you know, maze tricks and stuff. So they didn't get the brain deterioration. They said, why is it the the rats that exercise don't get dementia? And the rats that can't exercise because they're in this stupid little cage um, uh, develop dementia. What is it? What's different? And they found that one difference was something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which protects nerve cells from the damage of free radicals. And we believe that in humans and rats, people that have high BDNF 
BDNF levels have lower likelihood of getting dementia. Maybe one of the reasons why some people get dementia and some people don't. Well, exercise improves BDNF and so does fasting. Fasting has a profound effect on BDNF, as does exercise. So we want to use fasting to increase BDNF levels. And whether it's 16 hours every day or whether it's a week or two or three or four once a year, whatever it's going to be, we believe that the accumulation of those practices may actually help us avoid premature death and disability, increase healthy life expectancy, not just life expectancy, how long you live, but it, can you avoid the, eight, the 10 to 20 years of debility that many people experience at the end of their life? Can you live fully functional where you go to sleep one night and don't wake up a natural death? Or are you going to spend the last 10 years of your life unable to talk or move, lying in some nursing home bed, waiting for people to come and change your diaper? We believe the difference may largely be by taking control of what you put in your mouth. So our recommendations are health results from healthful living. Healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise, and periodic fasting, uh, whether it's 12 to 16 hours a day or possibly uh, longer periods of time uh, occasionally. And that we advocate a whole plant food SOS-free diet is what we think is the diet most likely to give you the best chance of not getting debility later in life slow the aging process and, um, you know, avoid the refined foods of any kind. I think a lot of people would love to know this. And for, for example, again, my, my mother-in-law, every year she does a structured fast herself, even though she's incredibly healthy. What do you do? How often do you fast? So I fast every year. Um, I fast for a week. If I have no symptoms, then I'm going to break it. Now, I personally don't like fasting because you cannot play basketball. You have to rest. I find it very uh, disruptive to my routine, which may be part of the benefit. Um, so, you know, I do that every year. And I believe that the people that get the most benefit of fasting are those healthy people doing it preventively. I know my mother, when she was 92 years old, she realized she had outlived all of her friends. All 52 of her friends that she'd known over the years were all dead. And now many of them used to make fun of her because of her crazy diet and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, she said she felt very alone because at 92 it's hard to make friends with much younger people and the people in anywhere around her age group were often debilitated and didn't want to do the things that she wanted to do and she said alan you need to warn your patients if they're going to do this diet make younger friends <laughs> so i warn people make start now make younger healthier friends so that later you'll still have people you can socialize with oh my goodness that's words of wisdom right there that's brilliant that's brilliant so, you know, I think that I love that you just said that as something that is supportive of, of one who's already healthy, already taking on, because I think that a lot of this has been focused on, which it rightfully should be on the healing of chronic diseases, which is a big part of our population. You know, right here in the United States, we've got four, we've got right now at this very, at this very time, 242 million adults are overweight or obese. We've got about... 50 to 60% of our population has some degree of heart disease. We've got uh, 115 to 130 million folks diabetic, pre-diabetic. We've got a lot of issues that we can solve, but we can also get better. And that's what's so exciting about conversations like this is like, what are the things that we can add into our superhero utility belt to just make us even better? I think one of the keys is recognize the pleasure trap, the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. If you really get the message of the pleasure trap, then you are very empowered because you can take responsibility to control your diet, your sleep, your exercise and fasting and avoid the diseases rather than have to try to treat them later. Yeah, I love that. Now, 
this is something that I, I touched on a little bit earlier, but this it's weird that we're going to put this towards the end of the conversation, but I would love to know because there's so many benefits here noted. Obviously, you know, we've got so many different peer-reviewed studies on it. You're doing research. You're seeing the success with your patients. But has this been a, around a long time in medicine? Can you share a little bit of the history of fasting? Well, you know, Fasting, you know, Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus fasted for 40 days, as long as 40 days. I mean, this use of fasting has been back to Hippocrates. I mean, th this is not anything we've invented. All we're doing is taking this ancient practice and trying to research it so we can better explain why it works. They've already known it works. It's just a question of what are the mechanisms? And so that's what we're really interested in doing right now with our research is trying to figure out non-invasive biomarkers so we can better tell who should fast, how long should they fast, when are they done fasting, and what dietary patterns work the best at maintaining health, not just over the short term, but in the long term. And our particular goal is helping people increase healthy life expectancy so they live until they die and not end up becoming debilitated and, and having to rely on their kids to kind of care for them, but rather remain high degree of functionality right till they reach their genetic potential. Mm. So Hippocrates, the fa quote, father of modern medicine, was employing fasting as a tool. It's And way before that, you know, as far back right. as you can go, yep. uh, you're going to find references to the use of uh, fasting. Yep, definitely. So I've got a couple of uh, final questions for you. And one of them you mentioned earlier, you said to make sure that you're a good candidate, right? And I would yes. imagine, again, the majority of folks are a good candidate for employing some smart fasting in their life in one form or another. So who would not necessarily be a good candidate? And can we get those folks who aren't in that category to being a good candidate somehow? Yeah. So the people that have uh, depletion deficiency syndrome, they've got cachexia, they're anorexia nervosa patients, people that have uh, depletion issues, people that are uh, in the end stages of metastatic disease, um, people that have severe kidney disease because you need a certain amount of kidney function in order to be able to adapt to the fast. For example, if creatinine levels were over 2.0, we're not normally using water-only fasting. We'll do a modified program just because we put too much load on those debilitated kidneys. People that have are on uh, anticoagulant medications would have to be stabilized off medication first because you can't just fast on these medications because they get potentiated and create a problem. And if you just withdraw them, then you're at a potential risk of stroke or having other problems. So it's really important that medications... Uh, uh, be appropriately managed, withdrawn, and, and, and be done appropriately in order to ensure that this is effective. People that have uh, dysrhythmia issues that require anticoagulant therapy because the anticoagulant therapy contraindicates fasting would have to be managed with an alternative approach. But I might mention that some of the intermittent fasting approaches where they're using limited calorie intake can be done in conjunction with medication so long as the physician is familiar with how to modify the drugs. Um, so, you know, those are some of the more common issues. Probably the biggest contraindication to fasting is fear. Fear is a very expensive emotion. So it's important people be educated to understand that this is an adaptive mechanism that the body had to have in order for our species to survive. Right now, though, people are so afraid of fasting. If they get on a plane to New York and they fly to California, they're pretty sure they'll die over Colorado if they don't eat the peanuts. They think the pretzels saved their life because, you know, five hours would be, you know, more than what their body could adapt to. Once they've seen that fasting works, once they've experienced it, they realize their body's ability to fast is a biological adaptation. All the humans that couldn't fast died in our ancestry. We, they had to be able to survive because spring would come late. And if you, with this big bulbous neuronal net we have, our brain that's our biggest form of glucose, 
If you didn't have the ability to change your brain from burning sugar to burning fat, you wouldn't be able to live any longer than the chimps can. And that's why you'll always find chimps hanging out in the tropics where there's a ready supply of uh, fruit all year long because their brain doesn't change to burning fat. It stays burning glucose. They can't fast like we can. Humans are really special because we had such a big brain. We had to have the ability to do this. And all the people that didn't have that ability are dead. Your ancestors, the ones that got enough to eat, didn't get eaten, lived long enough to reproduce and passed on their genes. Your brain is the same genes as a, a human 100,000 years ago. The only thing that's really changed is our environment. We changed the environment with our innovation. And now we have access to highly processed fractionated foods. And that's why we have two thirds of our population, as you said, being overweight or obese. Because they're exposed to these chemicals. We're addicts. We become addicted to the pleasure trap cycle and we've got to get out of it. Some people can get out on their own. Some people need help. Some people need to use fasting to escape the pleasure trap. This has been incredibly enlightening. And thank you so much for sharing your brilliance. I've got one final question for you. And it's just like so apparent in having this conversation. What makes you so passionate about this? What's getting you up every day and, and working with patients and just inspiring you to do this work in the way that you're doing it? Well, my wife says that the reason we made up the True North Health Center was so that I have a place to eat. And that the reason I'm doing this work is because I want to prove I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So she might be right. We've been married for 38 years. So I, you know, whatever she She's says, right. I know the secret to a successful marriage. I know those two magic words. Yes, dear. That's right. Legendary, legendary. Well, listen, this has been fantastic and I appreciate you so much. So again, can you share where folks can get more information and also uh, the name of your book and where they can pick it up again? Well, they can get The Pleasure Trap uh, anywhere uh, at Amazon or any bookstore. Uh, they can get to us for a free phone conversation by going to truenorthhealth.com and completing the registration forms. Uh, and I'll look forward to, uh, to speaking with them. Awesome. Dr. Alan Goldhammer, everybody. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. I want to make sure that we provide a plethora of different resources of different physicians who are out here helping patients to transform their lives, really. You know, it's so important today more than ever. You know, this idea, this topic, as he mentioned, this could seem like a rogue, crazy thing, but I've been wanting for years to talk more about this because utilizing some structured fasting was so transformative for my own health. And one of the things that I really saw start to change my paradigm as far as what was possible through nutrition and what was possible through the body actually being, being able to heal itself. Because I still had a very myopic lens. I had gotten better. I didn't know people can recover from diabetes. I didn't know people can recover from heart disease. I didn't know people can recover from uh, from fibroid tumors, the list goes on and on, you know, and what we see now we have so much data affirming how this can be utilized. But again, as he mentioned, there are different forms and aspects of fasting that folks can utilize. So whether it's a structured uh, daily form of it, you know, in the form of intermittent fasting or something, especially if you are at your wits end, you know, or you have a family member who's been struggling with the health issue this might be just what the doctor ordered. And so I encourage you to reach out to his clinic and get some more information. And the only reason that I'm really passionate about this subject is because I believe that everybody has the right to know. If something is working and helping people that 
heretofore hadn't seen any kind of results doing anything else or just progressively have gotten worse. As he mentioned, these are oftentimes the people who are most motivated to do something different, to do something as rogue and crazy as eating healthy and changing their lifestyle habits, or maybe employing some medically supervised fasting to be able to help their bodies to do what it's designed to do, which is to heal itself. So I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you did, make sure to share it out with your friends and family. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and on Twitter. I pop into Twitter and drop a tweet every now and then. And I'm at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And we've got some epic shows, incredible guests coming your way very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.